When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're joined by my good friend Nick Adair, talking mostly shotguns. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 216. Welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Got a great conversation coming up with my good friend Nick Adair from the Gundog It Yourself podcast, talking mostly shotguns today. We mix in some bird dog stuff as well. We'll get to that momentarily, but first, I'd like to thank Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. As always, those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show, can't thank you enough, and I sincerely appreciate it. Got a few new signups last week and was just messaging one of those patrons about an old English gun he inherited. I offered to look it up in my British Gunmaker's book, track down the serial number, give him a little bit of information on when it was built. Uh, that book was given to me by another listener, by the way. So many cool and thoughtful people connected within the Birdshot podcast network. I always get a kick out of that. And again, Patreon patrons are a key group of people that continue to fuel the Birdshot podcast. So those patrons are eligible for monthly giveaways, of which we've got a new winner to announce. Last month's giveaway, March of 2023. You may remember we had the Final Rise Turkey Vest up for grabs, which has been claimed by Ron in Alabama. He will be the proud new owner of a multi-cam Final Rise Summit Vest. Last week, I just got my new Final Rise Mossy Oak Bottomland Vest looking sharp 
as advertised. Such a cool vest. I obviously have a lot of familiarity with it wearing the Summit Series vest for my fall upland hunting, but I'm really excited to give the Final Rise Turkey setup a go in the turkey woods this spring. Although I probably should have asked Matt Davis if there was a snow camo version at the rate spring seems to be progressing or not progressing here in northern Minnesota. We got one more blast of winter weather this week, but the forecast tells me I might see 60 degrees above zero within the next few days so i'm eagerly anticipating that the snow does want to melt so that should probably do some damage but we've still got multiple feet of snow coverage on the ground all over here but anyways back to patrons monthly giveaways we'll have an onyx elite subscription card up for grabs in april everybody's eligible for that we do some bonus content from time to time in fact earlier this week bonus episode number six hit the patreon page that is available as well Starts at five bucks a month. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. All right, everybody else out there listening, don't forget to leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, and or follow the show, whatever you can do in your podcast app or player. Those are little things that just take a moment and do go a long way in also supporting the Birdshot podcast. So thank you for that. And that's kind of what I got for updates this week. We've got a gun fitting event with Upland Gun Company coming up early next month, about a month from now at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, and hopefully some turkey hunting on the horizon if we can just get this dang snow to start melting, which looks like will happen very soon. So I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, Frozen 4 kicks off today. Hockey fans, the Masters are on, so I can at least see some green grass on TV, even though I can't see it out my window. And we've got some good off-season shotgun-related conversation on the show today. So with that in mind, we will segue into our episode with Nick Adair, former guest of the show. He has his own podcast, Gun Dog It Yourself which we as Up and Gun Company are partnering with Nick over the next year to take him through the gun fitting and gun building process, which he will be documenting on not only his podcast, but also his YouTube channel, which if you haven't seen that yet, go check it out. I joined him for a rough grouse hunting video last fall, and Nick has continued putting out some very cool videos on his YouTube channel and will continue to do so in the future. So That said, he will be documenting some of the process along the way, starting with a gun fitting that he will be doing with Del Whitman later this month, and eventually, down the road, culminating in a new shotgun for Nick from Italy, the folks at RFM. We'll get that over here for Nick, and he'll be sharing some of his thoughts and experiences throughout the entirety of the process. So we're looking forward to that and to tea up that project and kind of kick things off i decided to have nick on the show today catch up with him a bit and talk plenty of shotguns sort of his thoughts and assumptions at the outset what he was looking for in a shotgun design and build and we talked through a number of the common questions that come up when it comes to shotguns and shooting on today's show just as a quick note before we get started i did truncate some sections of the latter half of the conversation that were very Upland Gun Company specific. We got into the gun builder and started talking about some of the different features and options. And I cleaned some of that up for the sake of this podcast conversation and kept everything pretty relevant to most of the features, options, and topics that would apply to any shotgun and not just that of Upland Gun Company. So even if a double gun from RFM is not on your radar, there'll be plenty in this conversation that will interest regular listeners of the Birdshot Podcast. And with that said, I think we will welcome into the conversation and back to the Birdshot Podcast, Nick Adair. Welcome back, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I don't know what we're going to talk about here today that you need me on here for, but we'll find out. <laughs> 
think we're going to talk about a, a new little venture for you into the world of shotguns and shooting. A deeper dive, if a, you will. A deeper dive. There you go. A, a renewed <laughs> sense of uh, trying to figure out something that will hopefully make me a better hunter or a uh, shot at the very least. Yeah. It'll at least uh, it'll put some more stuff in your head that you can fall back on and make more excuses for yourself next fall. Yeah. Or, <laughs> or just something in my head to help me spend more money because we all need something like that, right? Right. Yeah. We got to, we got to find, look for ways to, uh, to take this thing to the limit, uh, <laughs> in many, many facets. Uh, listeners of listeners of both of our shows will know that pretty well about us. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We, we always need something else to, uh, do a deep dive in and spend money on because we're, we're lacking apparently. Yeah, indeed. So the, the woodcock on your t-shirt is, uh, I had a false alarm yesterday. I, I was out hiking the trail. We're still covered in snow here and, we're doing our daily exercise run, which I I have started seeing some grouse tracks in the snow, which is just kind of unique because there's a few birds in this area. It's not a, we don't see them too often, but all winter I wasn't really seeing grouse tracks, but just within the last month or so, I've started to see some tracks. The dogs haven't found them yet, uh, but we're, we're kind of like, we haven't crossed paths at the same time. But anyways, yesterday we were walking and there's a beaver swamp. There's like a drainage and a beaver swamp and the south facing slope always melts off first. Right. And that's typically every year where we'll get some bare patches of ground. That's typically where the dogs and I see our first woodcock of the year. Well, yesterday I had both dogs stacked up on the south facing slope of the beaver swamp. And as far as bare ground goes, like there wasn't really any until yesterday. I noticed just ahead of Rose, there was like a, you know, like a hood of a car size patch of bare ground. I'm like, I'll be darned if there's not a woodcock <laughs> sitting there. There wasn't, there wasn't, it was a false alarm. Uh, I don't know if, if maybe there was one sitting there or whatever, but, but sometimes I wonder this time of year, like when the snow starts to recede and we do get patches of bare ground, like I wonder if dogs just kind of get scent that they haven't had for a while. Cause I seem to get some, some false points this time of year, but there, there may be, could have been a bird there yesterday it was a nice day but now today we're we're getting more snow and it's uh we're under a winter storm warning again once again oh god it's a, <laughs> it's the never-ending winter this year it seems like last year you guys got out of it kind of early this year y'all are making we up, did yeah y'all are making up for it yeah. this year apparently but yeah we haven't yeah. had woodcock down here i, I say that we i Austin came down a, a couple weeks ago, and we just ran the dogs back there, and, and uh, we actually ended up flying one. Uh, but usually, those are kind of the uh, the lo- local birds. You know, we'll have some that stay down here and nest down here, uh, but they've been gone for a couple months for us down here in Tennessee. But I think you and I talked about it a few times to where the the woodcock flights coming through here just did not measure up to what the typical flights are like so for you know mm-hmm. I, there there's much more intelligent people to speak on that matter than me but uh yeah it's it's one of those things i'm i'm already missing having those contacts down here especially with a young pup you right. know it's it's hard to beat woodcock contacts when you have a puppy on the ground that just needs that needs those contacts and and reps ultimately yeah yeah no doubt yeah and that's that's why i did bring it up too because it's like it was probably a month ago when you were sending me <laughs> videos of, of woodcock i'm like it'll be a little while before i start seeing them up here you did get uh you got the setter on some woodcock this spring didn't you a few uh it, it was okay. really early on but yeah she she did get a few and, and ultimately they just kind of flew up in her face and she was, and of course yeah. you know when she starts 
figuring it out and she's pointing some some training birds and stuff like that they're they're long gone but she got a few contacts so she at least got to smell a few and then uh, uh i swear there was one that i think the wings actually hit her in the face as it was coming up so uh you know again just lessons that uh are hard to replicate in in the training field but yeah it's uh those those woodcock contacts both coming you know fall contacts or spring contacts they're they're just invaluable for a young dog yeah, it's nice to get those those repetitions spaced out throughout the year a little bit so you don't have the long gaps between wild bird contacts, so you can take them when you get them. Exactly, and so, you know, I was sending you you uh, videos of the contacts I was getting while you're snowed under, so I'm sure you're going to repay yeah. the favor here soon when you're starting to get on some birds and, and send them yeah. to me. I'm like, all right, well, I'm in the land of no birds, and, and you're up there having fun. So it, it's all all a balancing act, I suppose. It is. It is. Yeah. We, we go through that all the time and you'll be, you'll be, uh, you and the dogs will be sweating a lot before, <laughs> before me and the dogs are anywhere close to that temperature range. <laughs> yep. It's uh, it, it'll be water, water training season before you know it. So we'll, we'll see what the uh, water training looks like with a setter in the stable this year, because uh, I'm sure that'll be interesting, but uh, yeah, it, it gets, it gets heated up pretty quick down here and then we're just miserable until, until the fall ultimately. Yeah, I will be. I will be curious to see how your uh, your setter does. I've got obviously my two setters. Hartley is basically a fish, and he wasn't early. It, I gave gave him some early exposure to water, and I think I've told this before. It wasn't until uh, my family ended up getting a cabin that, and he was probably two or three at the time, and then going there over time and he eventually got interested in the bluegills along the shore. And now he's, <laughs> I mean, he, ne- he never leaves the water and Rose is slowly getting acclimated to the water, but she's not in there swimming around. She'll jump in, uh, kind of, I think kind of to cool off on hot days and stuff. She has not swam yet. Um, she's going to be three in May, but she's kind of, she's basically, when we go to the cabin, which you've been there now, she's racing around up on top and she's on like squirrel and chipmunk patrol <laughs> and Hartley's down in the water. He's on bluegill patrol, like all day long. So, uh, again, <laughs> we've got everything covered. I was about to say the, again, that balancing act, uh, Quinn, she, she's done good, man. She's, she's a swamp collie, uh, or a puddle. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, if there's a puddle on the ground, she is going to find it and she's going to wall her in it. I mean, it's, she comes around. I mean, she, for a white setter, she comes out looking brown quite often. Uh, but for there for a while, she would just kind of prance, jump, have, run around in, in the shallow water. She wasn't afraid of water, but she would never leave her feet. And then uh, a couple weeks ago, she did for the first time. And uh, she she left to where she could touch ground. And she, she was going after the bumper that I threw and she just sunk like a stone <laughs> and then came back <laughs> up and I apparently thought better of it and turned around and came back to the shore. But, uh, she's, she's going into the water now swimming. So it's yeah. slowly, but surely. And, and, you know, it's just one of those things it's, it's hard to do a water intro during winter, right? You kind of have to yeah. wait for yeah. that warmer water and, and they'll go in when they, when they choose to. And I mean, there's some tricks and, and tips that you can do if you need to kind of nudge them a little bit. But for the most part, it seems like most dogs, if you just kind of get out of their way and, and make yeah. it appealing, if there's other dogs having fun, most of them will eventually kind of come around and do it on their own. Yeah. And I, th- I think seeing that with Hartley, that was like, Cause I think probably early on the first couple of years, you know, we, I gave him a few opportunities, but not a lot. So then I was kind of thinking, oh man, I, 
you know, I ruined him as a swimmer, you know, it's never going to happen. But then two, three years later, and you know, you see how it plays out. So with Rose, I wasn't too worried about it. I think I made sure there was some, some initial positive water experiences. We've got a little Creek here behind the house that we can get into. And, and yeah, now it just, it's, it is what it is. She goes in, whether she starts swimming or not, I don't know. We don't, we don't do a ton of that specifically, but the opportunity is, is there for her. Yeah. So, so when's Hartley going to have his uh, debut in the duck blind? Yeah. I, I, it would be really interesting to see what he would do because he'll go and get a bumper for me, but, um, it would, man, if people saw it, they would laugh. Cause he like, he'll, I can throw a bumper out, he'll go get it. And he comes back and like, doesn't really want to give it to me. But then if I get it, he starts barking like super <laughs> loudly wanting me to throw it. And it just turns into this whole like commotion that I just, I can't take so much of it. I'm trying to relax at the cabin. So like, we'll do it sparingly, but I feel like he would maybe have a hard time sitting still in the duck blind, but maybe not. But I think if I dropped a duck, I think he probably would go get it. I just, I don't know if he would come back barking or what. <laughs> We've never tried it. So. Well, I'm sure there's going to be at some point to where you're out grouse hunting and maybe you just have some, uh, the, the non-tox, uh, shells in your pocket or something. You can go jump shoot a duck just to, just to see how it goes. Well, I have thought about that. I've also thought, you know, every once in a while you hear people, dropping a grouse on the water or something, you know, which I have never, that's never happened to me. I've been close. Um, got a couple covers around like a little lake and stuff or the other side of a Creek, but nothing has ever happened like that where it was like a true test of, of Hartley's ability. But, um, there's always a possibility. I've done that with a pheasant. I haven't done that with a grouse or woodcock before, but there was a pheasant in North Dakota that I shot and it just, I might as well have been duck hunting, but fortunately, you know, the, the dogs on the ground there, they, they don't have a problem retrieving in, in water. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, I, I at least knew I was getting it back, but yeah, you want to talk about one ugly pheasant that for a picture is <laughs> you, you bring yeah. a drowned pheasant out of uh, the North Dakota slough. I'm like, yeah, this isn't going to be the prettiest picture for, for a tailgate picture by any means. Yeah. Those feathers aren't, aren't meant to get wet. I think if I recall, uh, you'll know Dave Lassard of under 40 yards. If he's listening to this, he'll have to remind me, but I'm pretty sure one of the first videos I ever saw of his, there is a, a grouse that like comes screaming by overhead and either he or his buddy drops it in the middle of a, a decent sized pond and the dog goes out and retrieves it. And I, I just have that burned into my brain as I'm pretty sure that was in his video. So Dave, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, I mean, I'm sure you spend enough time in the woods, you get enough contacts, like it's going to happen at some point one day or the other, but hopefully, you know, you, you have Hartley on the ground when that happens and not Rose who just, you know, like you said, is this going to go run to higher ground and, and go looking for the next bird? You're just sitting there. I'm like, well, how do I get this one back? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It hasn't, hasn't happened yet. I, I do feel like I've, you know, you usually you read, more likely in the grouse woods, you drop a bird on the other side of a creek or something, and and the you'll read stories of dogs going across and getting it. And um, yeah, that's the test of of does your dog really retreat? <laughs> All right. <laughs> and I could not say that about my dog. So uh, one day, man, you just you just got to put them in the situation, they'll and they'll come through, right? And then uh, yeah, right. It, but I don't know. Ho- hopefully, it works out in the in the right side of things. Hopefully, you don't have to forego getting your bird back in that scenario. Yeah, I think I'd be swimming at that point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>
let's transition and let's let's talk shotguns. That's what we came here to talk about today. Um, this is kind of a kind of a little tease. We're we're uh, we I I say as Upland Gun Company, we're going to be working with Nick Adair a little bit uh, on his channel, some some YouTube stuff, and maybe some podcast related stuff, and who knows, maybe we'll mix in some bonus episodes, that kind of thing. But uh, we're going to kind of take take Nick through the gun building process with Upland Gun Company and. In in so doing, we thought we might as well document some of that and capture some of the questions that Nick's going to have because they will no doubt be the same questions that many other people have. And and I talk to customers pretty much on a daily basis, and we go over this stuff a lot. And I think for the most part, people really appreciate when we have these kinds of conversations and answer those sort of frequently asked questions. So that's kind of the that's kind of the plan today, and we'll see where it goes. But where I want to start is you just prior to pheasant fest uh connected with del whitman who is a gun fitter that my listeners will probably have heard of we work with him a lot uh through up and gun company we we do some hosted gun fitting events with del there uh we got one upcoming but you had a conversation with del kind of dove into gun fitting a little bit which was kind of a precursor to you meeting up with del later this month and you're actually going to go through the process so just Give me a little recap of sort of your conversation with him, any sort of light bulb or aha moments. And then what are you looking forward to about actually getting to shoot and do a fitting with Dell? Yeah. I mean, ultimately it was extremely eye opening uh, and fortuitous, honestly, to to get a chance to pick somebody like Dell's brain on, on the subject matter, because you and I've spoken over the years. This is, you know, I have a very kind of elementary understanding or, or, not appreciation, but just knowledge base of shotguns overall, you know, throughout the years, I've kind of focused more or less on, on the dog work or trying to find the birds. And I haven't really paid attention to bettering my knowledge or skill level on the shotgun. And that's something that, you know, I talk about quite often on different phases during hunting seasons. What do we really want to work on this year, better improve and improve ourselves and the past couple of seasons, I've been saying, like, I, I need to get better about this shotgun stuff because I, I it, nothing is worse, in my opinion, than going out and you have you have the dog power where you need it. You're in the right location, but you just don't have confidence in your shotgun and or your skill in the shotgun to actually close the deal. And that's kind of been the the commonality of the past couple seasons within my own hunting to where it's like I'm I'm piecing a lot of elements together and I'm getting better about it but I was missing a lot and it just got to where I'm like I need to improve so when the opportunity came to uh, pick Dell's brain and kind of get to understand the process of fitting a shotgun to the person a little bit more I kind of jumped at it because I've always kind of come came at shotguns from a utilitarian perspective And it wasn't more or less like I knew that the fitting was an option out there, but I'm like, you know, it's, it's a shotgun. Like if it, if it shoots straight and and it's, you know, it it spreads, then I should be good. Right. Like I never really gave it any more thought than that. And, uh, so, you know, sitting down with him and, and really kind of understanding the process more, it, it truly does make sense, especially when you start factoring in that everybody has a different sight picture, everybody, you know, left eye versus right eye dominant, everybody has a different physical build, you know, I'm, I'm taller than a lot of people. Uh, and so like maybe my length of pull, my longer arms is longer than other people's, right? So a lot of those aspects to where you just go pick a shotgun off of the shelf or the rack, yeah, 
overall it'll work. Like eventually you're going to shoot some birds, but it's not going to be nearly as effective or efficient as what you would like. And, uh, that's kind of where I'm coming at. This is after talking to Dell and meeting you and Jerry up at, uh, up at the booth at pheasant fest and getting to handle some of these shotguns. I noticed that, you know, just some of the shotguns I was handling, they just felt better in my hand and, and shouldering than the typical off the rack stuff that I've, I've grown accustomed to or used primarily over the years. And so, uh, just kind of exploring the, the options more, uh, you've kind of planted a seed in my head. That's not going away now to where it's like, okay, now, now I really need to, uh, put some focus and intentionality behind this and, and try to see where it goes. And and one thing that you and I talked about that I'm really interested in doing is with creating this journey or, or documenting this journey, comparing and contrasting how I was shooting with my previous shotgun as compared to one that's actually fitted for me. Uh, I'm really interested to see how that turns out as we move along. Yep, that's good stuff. I'm excited to kind of see how it how it plays out, and we'll certainly be tuned into that. But you know, it's funny. I mean, you're. I think most people are are familiar with you know this idea that most of us, myself included, grow up shooting shotguns of a standard dimension, off the rack dimension, and that's mainly just due to accessibility and necessity, right? I mean, it's just a custom gun or and or a gun fitting is not the first thing that that comes up for for young hunters and and people just starting out but eventually for some people it becomes uh something of interest and something they want to explore and and that's kind of that's kind of where we come in to help facilitate that and you know my my curiosity has has been sparked by conversations with Dell throughout the years and you know I'm like uh, I'm on a, a little bit ahead of you on the journey but it was out of a very similar motivation after getting my bird dogs and like really leaning into figuring that side of things out. I was like, okay, I got to Now I got to learn how to close the deal for these, for these bird dogs, because uh, that was not one of my specialties uh, before going down this rabbit hole, if you will. So it's been, uh, it's been really cool to see. And now obviously through my work with up and gun company, I get to see a lot of other people go through that as well. So I've got a kind of a unique, perspective there and it's it's interesting and fun um and we're gonna we're gonna get into that a little bit today but is there anything that you've been practicing your gun mount ahead of the gun fitting with dell uh a little bit not much because i mean even the conversation with dell said it's kind of like he wants to get the kind of the true organic picture of of my sight picture like how i mount it you know he he doesn't want anything specialized or, or me altering what I do naturally, you know, that kind of defeats the purpose, right? right? Like, so if I'm up there and I I spend a few weeks practicing, practicing my gun mount, the uh, quote unquote correct way. And, you know, my natural, uh, gun mount is not that way. Then, uh, we're kind of measuring off of something that's not gonna naturally come to light in the field, if that makes sense. And so I'm kind of just sitting here waiting for the gun fitting opportunity. And I just want to go into it with as, as much as kind of raw practice, I guess you can say, uh, on how I actually use this, this tool and, and the shotgun so that he can actually give me the correct measurements or, or whatever. I, th- I, if, I don't know if any of that makes sense, but ultimately that's how I'm looking at it. Yeah, it does. It does. I will, I will sort of add that 
uh, practicing your gun mount is okay as long as it's your natural gun mount. Because the one thing that, and you've hit on something important, which Dell will talk about, and he talks through the fitting. We've done a gun fitting video with him, and he talks about it in there as well. But he doesn't want to, gun fitting is separate than like a wing shooting coaching. Right. You know, there's some advice and insight that's going to be built into it, but he doesn't want to dramatically change your style and try to do a gun fitting. He wants to, he wants to do the gun fitting with your natural style. But the one thing that is helpful is if you do have a consistent gun mount that you can bring up the same way, very similar every time, get to the same spot. And so just kind of greasing the groove, if you will, that can be that can be helpful ahead of a gun fitting. What you don't want to do is try to change anything on your own or like be work, working on tweaks and stuff. Yeah. In that regard, he, he wants to fit you with your natural style. So uh, a little bit of a little bit of practice, if it's the off season or whatever, and you're rusty can be helpful, but ultimately he's going to work with you and your your natural style, which is where the fitting comes into play. And that, that makes a lot of sense is, yeah. you know, just more or less get it consistent. So you're not changing every single thing. You're, you, it's not seated on your shoulder a completely different way, just because you've, you've gotten a little rusty since the off season. Yeah. Uh, that makes a little more sense, but I think, uh, you know, I, a lot of people are prone. They don't want to sit there in front of Dell Whitman shouldering their shotgun and they'll just be like, Oh man, that's all wrong. Like you, you can't right. do that. Right. So, uh, yeah, I can see how trying to like actually ch- church it up a little bit prior to going would get in the way. But to your point, just having it consistent to where it's, it's landing the same exact way. That's going to give Whit the op- or Dell, uh, the opportunity to, uh, hone in on what actually needs to be done the correct way. Yeah, it, it it allows him that's exactly right. It allows him to address what he's there to address, which is where your where your face is hitting the stock and he's moving the stock around, aka the rear side of the gun, which again, that that's sort of part of the process. It's all built in. Uh but if you're inconsistent in your gun mount, then there's other variables getting put into place there. And it all becomes very apparent when you're standing there at the plate with Dell shooting and you see the pattern hit the plate just as Dell does. And as he moves the stock, the pattern moves. And the more consistent your gun mount is, the more consistently the pattern will move with respect to his adjustments. And again, I've seen him do it a bunch of times now. It's really interesting. And I'm, uh, I'm looking forward for you to get a chance to go through it yourself. So yeah. we'll be following along. <laughs> Would you say that there's anything else besides the mount? Like you said, that's going to be the main thing, how you shoulder it, how your cheek comes to rest on it. Is there anything else within the form that like to, to further this, like that I should be more consistent on, like, you know, the, the weight forward back, you know, all, all that stuff. Uh, would you say that there's something else to your point that would be, uh, it would behoove me to actually like practice beforehand going to see Dell? You hit on the key points there, and those are just some basic fundamentals when it comes to like a shotgun mount, which again, they're, they are briefly covered in the gun fitting video that we did with Dell. So I'll, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. People can check that out, but yeah, kind of the weight forward. And that's sort of the stuff that Dell will talk you through if he sees anything that's like, you know, really out of place, but that's not going to have as big of an impact on the as an inconsistent gun mount would, you know, that's, that's going to really affect, affect the process that day where those other things can be sort of easily coached, but you're athletic. I've, I've hunted with you. I've seen you shoot. I mean, you're going to, you're doing that stuff pretty well subconsciously, but you know, when you are practicing your gun mount, you know, you maybe do a little forward lean. It's, it kind of feels the same as, as it does in the field, 
other than you're maybe a little bit more in your head and, and conscious about it, but um, just trying to keep it natural and trying to keep it smooth. And one thing I will say, be careful uh, in, in when you're doing practice gun mounts, I have this problem. You want to snap it up to your face and do it really <laughs> fast. It yeah. doesn't need to be that way. That is a problem in the field. I struggle with it. A slow and smooth gun mount is way better than than a fast jerky one yeah that that's something that especially i mean when you're talking about sometimes you have a split second to to get Mm -hmm. that gun up and and get a not even a bead but just instinctually just like point it in the direction of the grouse almost sometimes you just really need that quick one but i found myself after if like this past year was a great example going to montana first and and you're kind of in the open prairie my gun mount was very much more consistent and intentional and I, I, I was shooting better than when I go then into the rough grouse woods and you're that snappy action. I come out of the grouse woods, I'm like, oh, and there goes my shot, right? It's and then the rest of the season I'm kind of snap reacting shooting better so than the ones that I actually can have time to breathe and get a, get a beat on and shoot. Uh, it's really interesting that it kind of goes that way almost every season for me in the wide open. I'm shooting good until I go in the grouse woods. And then I I wonder if that's real quick, over-exaggerated snap, uh, mount has to do with that. Yeah. I, I, I experienced the same thing and I just, I attribute it to when you're out in the open, you just, I think you just don't feel the pressure and you have most of the time you have 100% visual contact on the bird. And I think that just leads, lets you naturally go through the process in a much smoother fashion. But when you're in the woods, it's the thundering, (laughs) it's the thundering of the grouse wings, depending on how close that thing gets up to you. And then just the fleeting glimpses that you're like, I feel like my brain just kind of short circuits and it just forces me into rushing. And the more I can control that, which is a, it's a never ending struggle and process, but more often than not, if I, if I miss a shot, I attribute it pretty much to a bad gun mount. You know, I mean, some, sometimes a shot doesn't go your way, but I think uh, a lot of my misses in the grouse woods are a bad gun mount usually due to rushing or jerking or something. And it's just, some of those factors are out of your control. Like if you can, if you can keep your composure and keep your head in the grouse woods, you can be a pretty good shot. Um, and that's something that we all strive for, but it's not an easy thing to do, at least not for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say typically when you get a poor gun mount, uh, and, and you miss the shot, is that, would you say that there's a, there's a trend of your feet placement more so than, than actual, like bringing it up to your shoulder? Because that to me, when I feel like I'm not getting a good shoulder mount, usually, you know, when the bird flushes and you're kind of in mid step or you're on uneven ground or stepping over a log or something, it seems like it kind of is correlated with that more so than me actually getting the shotgun up to my shoulder or cheek. I would say not as much for myself. I do have those moments where footwork footwork is a, is a hindrance or your footing, that sort of thing. I would say more commonly for me, my mistakes are related to my right hand getting too involved. And that just sort of, you really want to be driving the gun with, so I'm a right-handed shooter. So my lead hand, my leading hand is my left hand. You want to be raising and pointing the gun with your lead hand. And the right hand there is basically just there to support the stock as it rises to your face and then pull the trigger. And again, this is all stuff that Dell can kind of talk you through. But for me, I get, if a grouse is flushing, I have a tendency to get sort of tense in that moment. 
it's the excitement, you know, and it's, and that's part of the fun. It's part of what, what makes it what it is, but I'll get tense and my right hand will take over and kind of throw that stock up to my face. And uh, what happens is I miss my mark. You know, it's mm. when I'm practice mounting, I'm slowly raising my lead hand up and that just kind of allows the stock to rise to my face. But if my right hand gets too involved, you can get tension in that hand. And this is something Lars Jacob talks about a lot too, is you get tension in your hands. Same thing applies in golf. That's not a good thing. You want smooth, natural movement. Tension is not a good thing when it comes to swinging a golf club or a shotgun. And for me, that's one of the places that that I struggle with is I'll, I'll sort of throw that gun up and whether it misses my face or gets put on my shoulder before it gets to my face, there's a sequence of events that gets just, again, my brain short circuits, everything's out of order. And, 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 but most of the time I know it immediately. Like I shoot at the bird, bird keeps flying. And I know the stock was not where it needed to be on my face. And I attribute that to actually doing practice mounts and kind of knowing what a good gun mount feels like. It just, develops over time yeah and to your golf analogy i mean that's that that's the old trod and true saying you know grip it and rip it type thing (laughs) it's then you start pressing if you're gonna uh, apply that to shotguns and it's like you get frustrated then uh, the next bird all you're gonna do is throw that shotgun up even faster right subconsciously (laughs) exactly yeah yeah and then you get in your head about it and it can uh it can be a downward spiral i have experienced that (laughs) i made some good shots too and and they they feel they feel even better you know when they when they follow stuff like that bring you back down to earth (laughs) ground you a little bit no doubt no doubt yeah and that's you know everybody knows that's that's part of the fun about bird hunting is you're you're not going to hit them all and um that's not really what it's what it's about but making those moments happen is is what what all led up to it's fun you got to think about everything that leads you up to that point it, I mean, mm-hmm. just the preparation, I mean, we're not even talking about planning the trip or the outing. Like, you know, right. you, you can go plant and, and map scout uh, a walk and go out there. It's like that. I mean, yeah, that's time and work. But think about all the people that put in the time in the off season of training your dog, shooting clays, all that stuff, just to you finally get to the to the moment of truth, so to speak. And, and you just don't connect it's uh it's frustrating and it, and it's not like you said it's not about shooting the bird i mean it's not what it's all about but it's ultimately like when you put in the time and effort and work you you want some kind of you want it all to culminate in in closing out the sequence or the process ultimately and it's just like there's nothing worse than going out i mean it, the the trip i did to wisconsin last year it was, I don't think I've ever shot worse in my life. And, you know, I t- talked about that, but I mean, it just whiff, yeah. whiff, whiff. And it, I mean, it was honestly like embarrassing to myself. Like, it was just, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, we're chasing that moment and there, nothing's worse when you finally get to that moment and you, you just completely whiff on something that it's like, it's preventable. Like you said, practice your mount beforehand yeah. and, and, you know, it puts you in a better situation. Yeah, I, th- I think it's when you feel like you're in control of something and you don't, and you don't control it, you know, that's what leads to that feeling of disappointment where it's like, you can reflect back and be like, yeah, you're not going to get them all. And and it's no big deal. But if you're making things that you know, you could do differently, uh, making mistakes, then that's what kind of drags you down. Absolutely. uh, Yeah. That's, uh, that's all part of it. And like I said, I'll look forward to kind of hearing your, your process going through the gun fitting and, and that's just kind of the front end, but let's, uh, let's talk about the shotgun a little bit. Cause I find this to be very interesting, obviously, sort of which direction folks want to go. Um, and usually the best place to start is, uh, and it will be somewhat obvious, but 
but we'll ask you anyways, what do you want to do with this shot? What is this shot going to, going to do for you? What's it going to be used for? And, uh, what are you, uh, what are you envisioning and getting out of this shotgun? So, I mean, anybody that's listened to my show and, and you know as well is I kind of, I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none, ultimately. And uh, so I want I want a shotgun that isn't a, a specialty shotgun. Like, you know, it, it's, while my preference and my, my passion, so to speak, is probably rough grouse hunting, I also still don't live in a place with plentiful rough grouse. So, like, I kind of make do and fill in the gaps with bird, wild bird opportunities doing all kinds of different things. You know, I'll be on the prairie to start the start the season, then I'll be in the woods. But then it's like I find myself in different situations. Like last year, I found myself shooting snipe in North Carolina. You know, it, I want something that I don't have to leaving the gun safe one week and then pull out the next. I want something that I can, I can just maybe change the different type of shot and then just roll on. And, uh, you know, I I know that a lot of people, when they kind of get into the, uh, the, the higher end, uh, shotgun, uh, deal, they, they kind of specialize and that's, they've kind of figured out the one thing that they're after and they're comfortable with that. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, I, I want something that can be applied to kind of all upland game, uh, if not equally as close to equally as possible. And I think this is where I'm excited between the gun fitting and kind of your knowledge and, and picking your brain. You guys are going to be able to steer me into a shotgun that is a better fit for that type of situation than maybe w- the ones that I've been dealing with off the rack. Yep, that's a that's a great starting point. It's uh it's not an uncommon one and I think you bring up a good point there. I mean, we do, you know, I talk to people from sort of they're at all different phases of the game as you could imagine. You know, it, it's the it's the customer that has a whole safe full of guns and they're just wanting to do the custom gun process and they are I want a 28 gauge tiny little thing, you know, very very specialized tool. Then I have, and then I talk to other people that are at a little different point. It's probably not their first gun, but they've, they've shot some shotguns. They're curious about the gun fitting side of things and they want to invest in something like this. And they, but they, if they're going to invest in, in something like this, because it's not a, it's not a, uh, inexpensive gun, they want it to be very, very versatile. So then we start talking about, is that a 12 gauge? Is that a 20 gauge? Does it have interchangeable chokes? All the things that we're going to kind of, kind of run through today. So very common sentiment. And it's an area that we feel very well set up to, to help people through. So we've got a, we've got a unique gun manufacturer in RFM that is willing to build these guns made to order and, and with, very much tailored to the individual sort of within our, the parameters that we work inside of it with our gun models and stuff. And we've got the process in place to set people up with these shotguns and it's a lot of fun to see it all come together. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. You know, you guys have so many different options on this stuff. It's, it's kind of like I, I'm benefiting from this conversation right here, which you said that you kind of go through this kind of with, with all your guys customers, but it, it looking at this stuff, you know, you kind of told me start looking around, start start seeing what what it is that you like or don't like, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, man, for for a guy that is just strictly, for the most part, ninety five percent function, it, you know, I'm looking at all this stuff, I'm like, I don't even know what some of these selections are or are available, if it even appeals to me or helps with functionality, uh, and so that's why I'm, you know, when you you threw the idea out to capture this on on a podcast or something i I jumped at it because i'm like all right this will be fun to explore 
when you ask me a question, I'm my, most of my response is going to be like, is it going to help me? <laughs> you know, yeah. it, does it make it more efficient or is it just looks wise, you know? Yes. And uh, nobody yep. wants an ugly gun, just like nobody wants an ugly dog. But for the most part, I, I just, I want the functionality of this to, to be more yeah. so than, uh, Hey, that's a cool looking shotgun. Yeah. You're looking for the most bang for your buck. And the other thing is like, we get into a lot is like being very clear and upfront about, Hey, this is the, an aesthetic upgrade or no, this is a functional improvement. I mean, that those are the things that we talk about all the time. And I mean, for me, the way I look at it is these guns are available. We, we import them from Italy from RFM. And if somebody is, is interested in them and wants to know more about them, like my job is to make sure that they know as much as I can possibly tell them about this gun to make sure it's the right fit for them. And that's, I mean, that's the only way I look at this. And in the end, I think that works out pretty yeah. well for most people. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Well, well, but as we kind of start jumping into the shotgun, let me ask you a question. We've already talked about how I haven't been fitted by Dell yet. So if if somebody's coming into this knowing that they're going to get a fitting, is it even worth trying to like map out the actual shotgun prior to the fitting? Or is it it beneficial to actually wait after the fitting before you even start trying to build this thing? I would say it, it sort of depends on the individual and how, because uh, many people are, are very much, they know exactly what they want as far as a lot of these. Fe- and I think it'll become clear as we go through it. The difference between a lot of the features and stuff is pretty subtle. It's kind of like little things that we're, that we're talking about. There are things that a gun fitter could steer you one way or the other on, but it's pretty limited. Um, like in your case, you know, we probably won't finalize this officially until after you go shoot with Dell, just, just because we have that opportunity. But a lot of people come in, they kind of know exactly what they want to build. What The only thing they're missing are the stock dimensions, which is primarily what they're getting from the gun fitter. And so that, the way our process works, we can build the entire gun basically from start to finish and just leave the stock dimensions unfinished and then allow that customer to go do the fitting. So for the most part, that's that's the way we approach that. But I always, if somebody is very curious about something in there, looking for something more than sort of my opinion or what the information that I can share, I'm always going to defer to the gun fitter or or the expert in that case, just to make sure that again, want them to be 100% clear on on what they're building and why they're building it, and whoever can give them that information the best, that's that's the most important thing, really. So, moving into the gun, I, I mean, I know where you're going to go with this, but we should address it 
over under side by side. That's that's usually the <laughs> kind of like the beginning fork in the road for us because the way we work is we have different models of shotguns, which includes two models of side by sides and give or take two or three models of over unders. And there's some similarities and differences there. And we'll see how much we get into that today. But after that, after you choose your platform, then we get into sort of the individual characteristics about that shotgun. So uh, I know you've been shooting, uh, you've been shooting a side by side for the past few years now, and seem to be getting along fine with that. Was there, uh, is there any consideration for anything other than a side by side? No, nah, man, side by sides for me. I mean, once I kind of made that that switch a couple years ago, I've really enjoyed it uh, so far. Yeah. And I mean, there's just something about a side-by-side shotgun in the, in the field that, you know, you know me, I'm not, and we've already kind of touched on this. I'm, I'm not the biggest shotgun enthusiast. Uh, not yet. Anyway, you're probably sparking some whole brand new journey in my life here, but, uh, but for the most part, man, there's just something about a shotgun in, in the field, in the upland space and, and pictures and all that stuff that just, it just feels right. And, and just the presentation, when you're actually looking down the barrel, I just, you know, you hand it off or I go to the training shotgun in the off season. I just, I miss my side by side. So, uh, that's, yeah. uh, I'm definitely going to be sticking with that, that base to, to go with. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny thing too, cause naturally the difference in the two guns you know, people want to know, like, you know, what's, sh- why should I shoot one over the other? And I mean, where I come down to it personally is the functional difference between the two in the field, I, I don't think is, is huge. I mean, you, you hear high level competition guys primarily shoot over unders and that's for a reason. And I don't, I don't sit here and debate that. I just think for upland game shooting and what I'm looking for, I don't place a whole lot of difference on either two. And I just got, curious about the side-by-sides and once i once i started shooting them and took a liking now it's just like it fits everything i want i mean both aesthetically and fit wise and and not fit not fit wise because you can get a either or to fit you but i just personally like the lines and the characteristics of the side-by-side and one thing that's kind of unique is that you can typically build a side-by-side lighter then you can a comparable over under. And I think you see that pretty regularly within the weights of a given side by side and over under. Now that varies widely from model to model manufacturer. I mean, there's so much variance there. You can, you can kind of find whatever you want. And of course you can do alloy over unders and build a very, very lightweight over under, which we have those as well. So that's not really a, a game changer either way, but uh, it's kind of like just whatever you're interested in you're after. So yeah, I know you're you're leaning towards the side by side. Yeah, and and I just to kind of caveat off that, I think was it one of your episodes with Doug Stewart? I, I was listening to that one when I was trying to prepare for for this conversation as yeah. somebody that doesn't know much. I think he was describing that the side by side is built more for uh, the presentation on this quick snap reaction uh, shooting to where. Uh, the, the clays course, like you said, they primarily shoot over and under, but they're kind of ready for it. Like they're kind of pre-mounted and stuff. And the side-by-side is supposed to be, uh, better for the people that are actually just snap, snapshot shooting. Would you say that, like, do you agree with that? Uh, and kind of your experience as well? I I don't disagree with the theory behind and sort of the thinking behind it. Um, I, I really do. The side-by-side was sort of designed for that way game shooting um way back when and the thing that i the things that i find interesting are that it typically has 
because the barrels are side by side and not over under, the frame is shallower. And what that does is it does bring your hands a little bit uh, further up, closer to the line of the barrel. So like the theory there is that your hands are kind of more in alignment with the barrels and everything is right down the same same line of sight. Whereas with an over under, if it's a little bit deeper, your hands are a little bit below. How much does that translate to in the real world, in game shooting for guys like you and me? You know, I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm making my decision on that, but being a side-by-side shooter, I could nod my head and say, yeah, I, you know, I, I really like that for the, for the side-by-side being a game shooting gun. But uh, again, it's going to be, it's going to be personal preference for a lot of folks there. And the one thing I will say, I guess, is if you've never shot a side-by-side and you're, you're interested in shooting a side-by-side, absolutely go give it a try. I don't think you're giving up anything. You know, you're not, you're not going backwards by any means. So that's kind of the standpoint that most people are coming from because most of us have shot a pump, a semi-auto, or maybe an over-under, you know, maybe a double gun, um, which are all sort of the, the single barrel, a uh, uh, little bit different action profile than a side-by-side. So um, it's usually people are on that side of the fence looking over at the side-by-side side of the fence wondering why would i step over there and and i think the the previous discussions that you and i had like you were kind of not not steering me but you you pretty much suggested the venus just knowing what i'm after with the smaller frame the lighter weight and stuff like that uh you you kind of suggested that and i think at the time you even said that really the main difference is kind of the details on the back end like you were just describing with the wood grade Mm -hmm. and the scrolling and uh so really it's one of those again i'm kind of that makes a lot of sense. The lighter weight, uh, even, you know, I'm not going to be going and shooting sporting clays with it week in, week out. You know, it's like, yeah. I will a little bit just enough to practice and, and get in the swing of it. But for the most part, I'm, this isn't going to be a shotgun that I'm toting around in the training field and using on a daily basis. So, uh, for that reason, I think, you know, trusting in, in your, your suggestion and, and everything that you just kind of went through, I'm leaning towards the Venus. And then, you know, that kind of led us into the gauge discussion. Discussion, which that seems to be kind of the 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 premier discussion between shotgunners is you know what what type of uh, gauge are we talking and kind of listening to your previous discussions or recent discussions on your podcast when you're talking to everybody it seems like you got you're kind of steering more towards the payload is more important uh, than gauge for the most part at this so. So you kind of walk me through on your thought process when selecting a gauge because I'm I'm just leaning towards twenty because that's what I'm comfortable with. I've known it for a couple of years, but also we've yep. talked about possibly doing a swap out to where I have a twenty eight gauge barrel set as well. Yeah, and that's a that's an interesting conversation. And again, it's it's one where when you can when you can sort of pick and choose. Like I I was I can't remember who I was detailing this to, but. I feel like oftentimes with the shotgun, the the conversation starts at gauge when that's not necessarily where it needs to start because you can shoot different payloads out of out of different bores. And again, this is where you know we could get off on a whole tangent here. And I would just I would actually encourage people to list to check out the episode I did with Dell last summer where we talked about payloads and each gauge has a standard payload and and that's what it was what it's really meant to shoot. Now with modern ammunition and modern guns, we can squeeze a little bit more juice. We can shoot heavier payloads out of lighter guns, but there's always a, there's always a balance there. It's not just a, everything can be bigger, faster, stronger to, to no end. There's a balance when it comes to shotgunning and that gets into 
efficiency of your pattern and efficiency of your payload throwing those pellets down range things happen to that pattern and that payload as you increase it potentially increase a payload and shoot it out of a smaller and smaller bore um, so those are the things that again that's not the starting point for this conversation but if you're wanting to shoot heavy heavy payloads you probably don't want to try to figure out how what's the lightest smallest gun you can shoot them out of <laughs> you got to kind of be honest with yourself on what you what you really want to shoot out of the gun and then figure out what gun pro- has like the weight and the feel that you're looking for and then you can kind of use that to determine what the what the appropriate payloads you can shoot out of it so again for a 20 gauge 7 8 ounce payload in a venus a five and a half pound gun is that's a pretty light gun um so so to to shoot really heavy now you can shoot heavy payloads out of the gun it's not going to affect the gun it's it's more about how does it affect you right (laughs) that's 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 where it is but i think it's pretty well known that in 2023 like with all of the ammunition options we have a 20 gauge is a very very versatile upland gun you can do a lot with a 20 gauge pretty much anything in the upland world of course it has its limitations i would say that like probably the most versatile gun i could we could build with rfm would maybe be something like a 12 gauge venus and this is for upland specifically a 12 gauge venus is about a six and a quarter pound gun which is a very very reasonable uh light handling weight for a 12 gauge and with a 12 everybody knows the ammunition options you have out of that and you can throw an ounce and an eighth as a standard payload out of a 12 gauge that's going to throw the most pellets down range out of anything else that we're talking about certainly right now many people are much more interested do you have a question there no, no, I'm just, okay. I'm, I, okay. you breaking this all out. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, all right, 20 or 12. And I'm okay. kind of curious to hear your take on the 16 gauge. Cause it seemed like a few years ago, everybody was kind of on the 16 gauge kick. And so I'm, right. I'm, I was kind of curious to, to hear your take on the 16 gauge and how all this correlates as well. Yeah. And, and certainly I myself was one that was drinking the purple Kool-Aid for a little <laughs> while, the, the 16 gauge purple Kool-Aid. And like my my thinking has just evolved around around gauge so much so that gauge is is just less relevant it's just i can shoot a one ounce load which is the standard payload for a 16 gauge i can shoot a one ounce load out of anything from a 28 to a 12 and there's a lot of debate and conversation that goes around uh, sort of like the pros and cons of doing that especially shooting say a one ounce load out of a 28 gauge um that's a heavy payload for a 28 gauge but plenty of people do it with plenty of success so that's where i I come back to like in reality i could do that but what what is the difference so for me it's more the 12 and 20 gauge are the two gauges that have the most economical ammo and like the most uh, available options of payloads and shot types and everything. So it's very hard to argue with the practicality of the 12 and the 20. For a 16, if you just want a 16 and you're comfortable with the ammunition options you have available and you talk to me and I tell you what I think the weight of a 16 gauge gun is going to be in the case of a Venus, that's going to be about a six pound for a lot of people, a six pound 16 gauge with that kind of handling and feel is what they're after uh so for a lot of people that would make sense but trying to do the whole 
is a 16 better than a 20 is a 12 better than a 28 like that that's where you can kind of just get into really really murky territory that just like you can just waste a lot of time (laughs) well and i think something that you said that that really is is speaking my language more so is the economical factor of it It, is finding the shells because this is something that after the shotgun and stuff and and, you know i might be doing it at the same time is is starting to try and figure out this payload and the right shell recipe so to speak because ultimately like we've all been in the situation where maybe we don't have the right shells we have to run to the nearest bass pro cabela's whatever it is Mm -hmm. and fill in and then you start looking at the price tag of a 16 gauge or a 28 gauge in relation to 20 or 12 and your you know your eyes can get pretty big pretty fast and and so like you said finding the the supply or the options for your ammo or your payloads in a 20 or 12 is just going to better serve what what it is that i do most commonly so that's kind of where i've landed on the 20 gauge for the most part yeah and and me again i i know more about you than i know about say a random customer that i'm talking to so i might i might be asking some more questions about what they plan to do with it but knowing that you're primarily you know you're hunting rough grouse and woodcock you're starting to make some other trips um i know that a 20 gauge is going to serve you well it's also going to be it's also going to be a weight that is uh, a very very enjoyable gun to carry and to shoot um so that's kind of that's kind of where we landed and i think let's talk about this two barrel set idea at this point yeah because this is the one that that is very interesting when you start talking about two barrel sets i feel like because of this whole gauge payload thing say you take a 20 gauge and then you want to add a set of 28 gauge barrels well there's there's really nothing that a set of 28 gauge barrels can do that those 20 gauge barrels cannot do i could shoot three quarter ounce payloads out of a 20 gauge barrel all day long and in theory they would they would pattern more efficiently out of the larger bore because as bore size increases so too does pattern efficiency but Again, let's let's come back to reality here. What does this what does this mean in the real world? Are you going to kill more birds with a three quarter ounce load out of a twenty gauge than you would with a a twenty eight if you have the same stock and they're both shooting the same? Um, you know the difference is probably going to be minimal there. But so I feel like you can when you get into two barrel sets because you got to build them on the same frame. So in this case, we're taking a twenty eight gauge set of barrels that we would normally build on a smaller frame. We're going to build them on the twenty gauge frame and with that you've got to you have to make those barrels and those chambers big enough to fit the 20 gauge frame so you add a little bit of weight actually to the smaller barrel so your 28 gauge barrel is not necessarily many people think it's going to be lighter not necessarily and sometimes it can even be slightly heavier what i've seen from a lot of the two barrel sets from rfm is the weights are they're pretty close and oftentimes the 28 would be a little bit heavier but where we're talking five and a half pound range we're still in a very, very reasonable, respectable weight for a 28, what people are looking for in a 28 gauge shotgun. If we build it on the the smallest frame we make, which is one that we use for a 28 and 410, it's going to be about a five and a quarter pound gun. And that's, that's the gun that I was hunting with last year. And I've talked about uh, plenty on the show, but that's a very light gun. One that I'm even wondering if, if I even need to be shooting, I don't need to be shooting a gun that light, but I'm kind of curious now, um, am I better served shooting a little bit heavier gun? Those are the little little sort of nuances and details there. But for you, we're building a custom gun. We're going to pick out one piece of wood. We're going to put your stock dimensions on it. You're going through this process. 
and I know that from talking to you, you've kind of been curious about, well, what if I am just rough grouse and woodcock hunting? And what if I do want to try that specialized tool? Maybe this is the right opportunity for me to add another set of barrels, take advantage of the incremental cost increase. You're not buying, buying two guns, you're buying one and you're adding a little bit of cost to add another set of barrels. And then you kind of get two guns in one. And that's where most people that decide to go through with the two barrel set, that's where their head is at. They understand the quote unquote compromises that are being made, but they're comfortable with what that overall gun is going to look and feel like. And to them, they're getting a 2028. So I think that's kind of what you and I had talked about a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not one of those guys that I don't need a, a gun, say full of, you know, five different 20 gauge uh, shotguns. You know, to me, it, it's, 20 gauge shotgun has, has its use. And if I have one, then I have it covered. I can move on. But to your point, if it, if during this process, it opens me up to have a 28 gauge and say, I do need that tool for, you know, fill in the blank later on down the road, I have it sitting there right there. And it's not, you know, I don't have to go buy a 28 gauge for a very special case hunt or situation. It's all right there, interchangeable. It just makes sense to me to to kind of go down that route, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And there's certain things that, again, for certain applications for a 28 gauge, if you're out, if you're out on a woodcock hunt or, or a quail hunt, I mean, the 28 gauge is plenty capable in those situations yeah. and very enjoyable to shoot. Um, and I think you, you would find yourself in that situation. And, and you pretty much just nailed exactly where my head's at. It's like, I can have the 20 gauge on for, for shooting rough grouse, pheasants, what, whatever, with the right loads. And then, you know, when I'm chasing these woodcock, the quail, like I said, last year, I got after snipe. I just think that the 28 gauge would be a blast to pull out and, and shoot some of those faster, uh, smaller birds for the most part. Yeah, indeed. So, so that's kind of the the basic framework that we're talking about. I suppose at this point we should, I don't think we need to go through every single thing here, but if there's anything that you're interested in, you just let me know and I'll, I'll answer. So trigger, here's one where, where the conversation's a little different. And, and this is uh now you've got some experience, your side by side that you've been shooting is a double trigger. So I guess I'll ask you what questions are you, do you know what you want and what questions do you have in regards to double or single? Trigger? Man, I, I'm sticking with the double because I, t I got used to at first when I switched, I'm like, man, I don't know. Everybody has that worry. Like, Oh, am I going to get used to the double trigger or not? It took very little time for me to get used to it. And then I got used to it to the point to where like in real time, actual bird hunting, I am selecting which barrel based on which choke I, I have in the barrel the functionality of that, I don't think I can get away from if I wanted to right now. So for that reason, I'm sticking with the double trigger. And then also you add in the fact that that's what it kind of comes with. That's your basic package. So I would be paying up to go to the single trigger in something that I feel like I have better control in real time to make a decision on which barrel just with the double trigger. Now I have a question for you, like with the selector do you know many people that actually get proficient using that selector to select their barrels uh, in real time as well? Yeah, good question. You hit on all the major things there. Um, I I find that this is one that most of our side by side customers are going with a double trigger. We do we do plenty of single triggers for folks that want it, but that's why we offer the two options: is a single trigger without the selector 
or for an additional cost, you can do a single with selective. Most people end up doing the single. And what I hear from most people is that, yeah, I, I, a selective trigger is selective single trigger is kind of a standard feature on a lot of guns, but most people don't actually use it in that regard. So we do a lot of the single trigger, but again, to your point, the double trigger is the standard option, no cost increase there. It's a, a very simple mechanism, uh, having a double trigger, one firing each barrel. It's a more simple mechanism to keep shooting what you've been shooting. And, you know, it, it's usually people that are getting a single trigger are, are reluctant to either a learn how to shoot a double trigger. Just don't think they can do it. I was thinking about this the other day. Cause a lot of people ask, there's a little bit of a learning curve. You got to go figure it out, but it very quickly. And I guess I can speak to myself personally. It very quickly be, becomes second nature. Um, I'm not, not thinking about it. And it's a very easy thing to do. And the other day I was like, can you drive a car? <laughs> can you turn a steering wheel and use the pedals and, and move the blinker and do all of this? Like if you can drive a car, I think you can shoot a double trigger, but right. it's just, it's a matter of, do you want to? And the one thing I will say, which we talked about earlier with, with GunFit, um, consistency is important. And for a lot of folks, I think that's kind of the deciding factor is that if they've got all single trigger guns and they want to, they want to just stick with that. I mean, that, that makes total sense to me because I have found that where you can get into trouble is if say you're going to go for a walk in the woods and carry a double trigger gun, come back to the truck and switch guns and pull out a single trigger gun. That's where, where yes. I think things could get a little, little hairy, but oh, yeah. again, that, and that pretty that, simple stuff that has happened. I mean, you, you swap shotguns with buddies or whatever. I mean, wh- whether you're going from a single to a double that throws them off. If you're le- leaving double going yeah. to a single, it throws you off. But yeah, it's, I had the same initial concerns that you hear from everybody, I'm sure on on a, on a daily basis, almost of not thinking that they can do the double trigger. And, and I can say like, like you said, surprisingly how fast I adjusted to it. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, they don't really think that, or for, they don't really visualize them using the, the double trigger or selecting the barrels as often as, as what I, I mean, I didn't foresee me using it as often as I do, but I can tell you right now, I have saved a lot of ammo when that bird gets far up out of the way and me selecting that tighter choke. And I don't even mess with shooting the the more open choke. It does conserve ammo. And, uh, I just, I like the versatility of it ultimately. Yeah. And see, I, I like that because I'm, I don't really do that. Like I have the, I understand like the instant choke selection and we have that with the side-by-side or over-under in that regard, but I'm always just a front trigger, back trigger. I do that all the time. And you know, it is what it is. Like you, you have the option to, to do it either way, but I know, I know plenty of people that bird gets up and you know, maybe they're just, they're thinking ahead of me, but bird gets up at a distance and they pull the back trigger. My old timer buddy, Scott, he does it, he does it all the time, but yeah, I'm always a front trigger, back trigger. <laughs> Whatever works. Like you said, consistency, you exactly. know, we, we talk about consistency in the mount. It's got to be consistency on how you, you squeeze the trigger as well. Indeed. All right. Ejector extractor. This one's pretty straightforward. The extractor for me. Extractor is yeah. a no cost included option. So you have, to, most people are asking themselves, do I really want to pay for ejectors? On a, on a field gun, many people are very comfortable without having the ejectors. Yeah, there, there's not too many times in my years in the field that I've felt like I needed to 
to eject the the hole so that I can reload faster. It just it's never presented itself to me to where it's like I wish that I had ejectors. So I'm fine with just sticking with the extractors. Barrel length is the next one, and this is is of course an interesting topic. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but I think what makes it somewhat interesting, at least for us, is that. You've got barrel lengths from 26 inches to 30 inches. There's no cost difference. So it's kind of like an open playing field. It's like, where do I, where do I land with it? So what are your thoughts on, on barrel length? This was one of my main questions for you, given the fact that you, you know what I'm doing, you know, you know, typically when you talk about a bunch of people in the grouse woods, you automatically assume that that shorter barrel is a benefit given high stem density. Maybe you get a little more swing, but something that I've kind of realized in my experience hunting more and more and then talking and listening to to your guys's episodes is the length of barrel isn't that big of a deal i mean at the end of the day is is that two inches off the barrel really gonna afford you a wider you know swing through on the shotgun and most of the time you're kind of poking through anyway you know the the grouse is going you're kind of you're you're shouldering it and poking it through the stuff instead of swinging it if that makes sense and so yep. my question to you was like practicality speaking and functionality, like what would you recommend for something to where like maybe I maybe I don't need a 30 inch barrel in the grouse woods, but maybe when I'm out there chasing pheasants or sharp tails or something, maybe that longer barrel would be appreciated. So it's like they're kind of a meet in the middle in your opinion on this one. Yeah, I, I think you, you've hit on all the important things. The one thing I would highlight here, which I think is obvious to many people, but it's it's worth noting that the barrel length is not a one-to-one conversion when you're going from side-by-side to semi-auto or pump. Uh, a semi-auto gun or a pump has an action in place that often adds length to the gun versus the barrel length. So, a semi-auto with 26-inch barrels may be the same overall length as a double gun. This could be side-by-side or over-under with 28, 29, or even 30-inch barrels in some cases. So the overall length is slightly different there. So if you're comparing semi-auto or pump, be careful to you want to check the overall length if you're comparing that to a double gun. So that's the first thing I would say there. Secondly is that for me, 28 inches is kind of a, it's a great can't go wrong sort of foolproof. You know, 28 inches is a very common barrel length. You see it on a lot of field guns. You see 26 inches a lot as well. The conversation we have is that when we're specifically on the side-by-side side of things with the RFM guns, they're relatively very lightweight. They're they're oftentimes a lighter weight gun than than people have shot. For you, I, knowing the gun that you have, it's going to be lighter than than your current gun. So you can have a, a lighter weight gun with longer barrels. I think you have more to gain by going out a little bit in barrel length than you do by by shortening it. I also know that you're 6'2", 6'3". Yep. Your length of pull is probably going to be 15 inches. So the only thing that would give me pause about encouraging somebody to consider going to 29 or 30 inch or at least 28 is if it was a very a person that was a very small stature or has a very short length of pull we're t- we're talking proportions at that point but mainly it's the weight of this gun being such a lightweight gun i think you've got more to gain by increasing the barrel length potentially smoothing out that swing a little bit when you do get out to the prairie and you're shooting sharp tails and pheasants and that kind of thing and you're just not going to be hindered by it very often if ever 
in the grouse woods. In fact, last year I, I shot a 30 inch barrel gun in the grouse woods and I can't think of a, a single example where I was hung up or missed a shot because of the two inches of, of the barrel. It's just a, it's such a non, that's not really a reason to make the decision. Now, if you love 26 inch barrels and that's what you want, great. You know, we'll, we'll build it for you that way. But if you're interested in what might the differences be and why might you consider uh, one over the other, that's where some of this stuff comes in. So for you, I would, I would absolutely, again, just knowing your size and stature and the weight where this gun is going to be at. Um, and this would be one of those things we could certainly sort of leave open-ended. You could talk to Dell about it, but I would for sure consider 29 um, and probably 30 inches on, on your gun. Man, I it, let's do that. Like, you know, we'll leave it open-ended if Dell says that, yeah. no, you should probably do X, Y, or Z. Uh, we'll obviously leave it up to his discretion uh, on that piece, but I, I'm with you on you know 29 or 30, and, and for the most part, you know just just the way my brain functions, I'm going to have to make it an even number and make it a 30 incher and and go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one thing I will say too about because a lot of times you'll see two barrel sets with um, this would be a good question for Dell, and I kind of have some insight into what he would say, but you'll see two barrel sets. Um, sometimes they're in the same gauge with a different barrel length. And I think the thinking there was like, all right, I've got a 30 inch and a 28 inch and one's my prairie gun and one's my grouse gun, which again, it's the same logic applies there. But in talking to Dell a little bit about this, he actually prefers, and certainly he could correct me if I'm wrong, but to have the same barrel length, like you're better off again, consistency, coming back to consistency better off having a 28 gauge and a 20 gauge with 30 inch barrels both so you have really the same sight picture especially on the same stock in a two barrel set you've got the exact same sight picture um, in theory with both of those gauges so i have an idea of what dell's going to say regarding barrel length uh on this but uh we'll (laughs) We'll go ahead and call it now we can tell you if you're right or not (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah pretty sure it's going to be 30 for you yeah uh all right chokes we got fixed chokes, interchangeable chokes. Yeah, you know I'm going interchangeable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you I, it, it. yeah, it just, you know, I'm sure that they're, especially the people that know what they're going to be doing with the shotgun, it makes sense to yep. just have fixed chokes. But as as we were kind of talking about earlier with me doing anything and everything, depending on where I'm at and the time of year, uh, the interchangeable chokes uh, that that's where I got to go. And, and I find myself, uh, uh, the more I do this, not changing chokes as much as I used to when I first got into it. Uh, yep. but I also want that option in case it, it arises to where I feel like, you know, I've kind of done my checklist. I'm like, okay, is it form? Is it, is it b- ballistics, whatever? Okay. Now it's down to the choke. I want to be able to change that out. If, if I feel like that's completely necessary. Yeah. This is one where, I don't like to do, uh, you know, if people ask me sort of my thoughts and opinions, I'm happy to share them, but interchangeable chokes are something that are so standard on so many guns that, that many people sort of, that's the sort of the baseline they start with. What we do is we strip away everything that doesn't need to be there and then just allow you to add it back in. So just as you pointed out, many people have shot fixed choke guns. Maybe they own vintage guns, which were, have much more of a propensity to have fixed chokes than interchangeable they know what they want. They're not going to think about it. They're going to put fixed chokes in and they're not going to pay for it. For you, building the 20 gauge, go anywhere, do anything, practicality's sake, put some choke tubes in there. You're getting ultimate versatility with your choke tubes. And again, that'd be another one. Um, ask Dell about that. I know his thoughts on <laughs> choke tubes. He, he likes them. 
he likes them in, in his guns and yeah. uh, it's hard to argue with it. So, right. All right. Grip type. Man, I, I've gotten used to the English uh, on my current gun. I, I think I'm probably yep. going to stick with English unless there's a, something that I don't know about. You kind of know my knowledge level on this. Is there anything that you would kind of steer me in another option as opposed to English? I think this is very similar conversation to the uh, trigger conversation where unless you are, you know, have an aversion to the English grip, you tried it and don't like it, that kind of thing. I think the English grip sets up really, really well on the side-by-side. It's kind of the classic game gun design with the splinter forend and the straight grip. But yeah, you're already shooting the English grip. You're comfortable with it. I should say that the common thinking is that an English grip does set up really well for double triggers. I I do agree with that to a certain extent. Um, it is not that the English grip is the only grip that works with double triggers because, again, the it's kind of like the thick cover barrel length conversation. The yeah. logic tells you, well, I've got two triggers, so I'm sliding my hand backwards on the English grip to get to the back trigger, and that makes it easier. It's not so much of a slide as it is a you're relaxing your grip just slightly, allowing your index figure to come back to that back trigger. There's not a whole lot of motion going on there, at least for me and I think for most people. So it's not that you can't shoot double triggers with a round knob or Prince of Wales grip uh, or anything else. But again, for the sake of this conversation, you're shooting the English, you're comfortable with it. I would absolutely stick with it. It's included in the price, no cost increase. Right. Yep. Now let's just roll with the English then. All right, and then the last few are, for the most part, those are those are sort of aesthetic upgrades. We've got the the dog engravings, the the perforated top lever is sort of an aesthetic, you know, it's a flower design in there. Um, just little things that people look at. Everybody comes to this with a sort of a different vision in their head of what they're after, and and none of those really apply to the gun that you're trying to build. So um, that kind of walks through the build. Um, Thanks for going through this exercise with me. Yeah. And before we end, I'm not trying to end it just yet, but do you have any, like, did anything come to light? Do you have any questions? We've got some things that you've got a cool opportunity coming up here in a couple of weeks. You're going to meet with Del Whitman so you can, we can kind of print out this build and you can go over it with him, um, which is what a lot of people do. But what else is on your mind at this point in the process? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's like going into this realistically, and, and and like I said, I mean, coming from the world of shotguns that I've been in for for years and in, in my hunting career or life, whatever you want to call it, uh, I knew that going in, this was going to be a little bit different of a process. But I'm excited to, you know, a just going through this process with you. I hope that the listeners kind of got some value out of it, other than just building, you know, my shotgun. There's really not a whole lot of interest in people hearing my shotgun going in, but hopefully you're able to kind of advise on what each element of this really is and it actually entails. So hopefully that, you know, if I had the questions, hopefully other people did as well. But for the most part, I'm, I'm excited to go get this fitting process done so that, you know, it kind of comes full circle and I really kind of understand what this whole process is about. And then of course, once it's in, then it's, you know, I'll be bugging you every week. Like, Hey, where's an update on my shotgun? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You and everybody else. Right. 
And uh, I can only imagine some of the orders that you get from some people that have been dreaming about doing their own custom build shotgun for, you know, 20 plus years. And they start doing some of these really uh, personal customizations. Like I can only imagine some of the shotguns you've built. It's uh, I bet y'all have built some really cool, amazing shotguns that people are enjoying out there. There's no doubt that's that's one of the most fun parts of what I get to do with Upland Gun Company is seeing projects go from start to finish, which I'll be two years in May officially working with the company. And I've I've helped many, many people design shotguns. And ultimately, in fact, this this is morning, I got at least two or three emails from people. We just had a shipment come in. So I'm getting the, the emails from people that have been waiting for months and months and they finally got them and they're they're getting their first impressions and the fit and finish and they're just sort of oozing over the guns. And of course, we love to hear that. Uh, it's a testament to what RFM is is doing as a gun manufacturer. And you know what? We've got a lot of repeat customers, which is which is saying something. In in our short uh, time of being in existence, we've had people order guns and wait and get their gun delivered and come back and order another one. And and to me, there's no more testament to making someone happy than than a repeat customer. So we love seeing that. And yeah, the folks at RFM are are doing an awesome job and they're making a lot of people happy. So it's fun. I mean, and anybody that's listening to this, if they haven't checked out the options on the website and and just had fun building their own shotgun, I I would urge them to do this because you hear custom shotguns, you automatically like out of my price range. But for right. the most part, you look at this stuff, it is very reasonable depending on which, which thing you're looking at. And, and a, yeah. a lot of these options are, uh, you know, I'm not going to say everybody can afford it or they're in a position to where they can, but I think it might surprise a lot of people when they kind of start building their own one and seeing what they get for the actual cost that they're putting into it. It, it is pretty eye-opening once you actually go through the process and start building out what, what you think is your dream shotgun, right? Yeah. And like, like you said, everybody is sort of at a different place and has a different perspective on what they are looking for and what they would be willing to spend to get that. But for the most part, the people that we do end up talking to, which have you know conceivably gone on the website, they, they've seen the prices, they know what kind of a gun that we're building. We hear over and over again that that, that it's way more attainable than the, than they would have envisioned going into it. So it's definitely cool, and that's always the running joke: is how many uh, how many mock builds have you done before you actually <laughs> send one in? And you know the answer ranges from about ten to a hundred. Yeah. <laughs> so we usually, we usually have a pretty good laugh about that. Uh, I was about to say, how many builds have you done for yourself over over two years? You said that you've been there, and I guarantee you've probably built probably fifty different shotguns for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've done a few. I'm I'm pretty much building building a new one in my mind alongside every customer that I talk to. So <laughs> I just got to, I just got to not submit those. <laughs> yeah. There you go, man. I, I don't know, man. Was there anything else that you needed from me or, or, uh, wrap this up? It seems like we kind of went through the entire process. Yeah, I think we kind of did. Uh, I would imagine, you know, this is kind of a unique episode on the podcast. So if we created more questions for people, you can always reach out to me. Uh, with those questions, Nick at birdshoppodcast.com or maybe more appropriately, nick.larson at uplandguncompany.com. But um, if Nick and I breezed over anything, just reach out to me. I'm happy to, uh, of course, talk to anybody listening that that would like to learn more about the shotguns. But for the most part, I appreciate you going through it with us. We're excited to to be working with you on a couple of these projects and seeing the process go from start to finish. And most importantly, capturing that for other people to watch and listen to as well. So it should be fun. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate the opportunity and uh, excited to go through it. And and now the 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 wait to the fitting and then the wait for the uh, the actual shotgun. I guess it, it begins. Yes, it has begun, and uh, we'll look forward to tuning in throughout the journey. Thanks, buddy. Yep. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.